Is everybody ready? Let's get rolling. This is The Big Show on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Big Show, Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5, 1280 The Zone. We're going to talk to Chris Mannix coming up here momentarily. He's there in the bubble in Orlando covering it for Sports Illustrated. Jumps on with us every single Monday. In fact, uh, Chris surprised us last week, Gordon, because right after he joined us, he was basically standing right next to Rudy Gobert at a media availability. He was. He was. It was good to hear from him there, too. So always good having Chris on. Yeah, we'll talk to him, get his thoughts about uh, how it's going and uh, what he's seen down there. I mean, uh, I tell you what, if you're covering the NBA, the entire NBA, this has got to be uh, a dream, right? Uh, Storylines galore. In fact, let's, uh, let's talk to Chris. It's time for your daily assist. Austin, hit it. It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Out to the T-Mobile special guest line we go. T-Mobile and Sprint are coming together to build the best wireless company around. Visit T-Mobile.com for online services and local store availability. From Sports Illustrated, he's our friend Chris Mannix. Hi, Chris. What's going on, guys? Hey, we were just laughing uh, before you uh, you jumped on that last week. You, it kind of sank in that you're actually in the bubble in Orlando because it seemed like as soon as you hung up the phone with us, you were standing next to Rudy Gobert in a media availability. <laughs> it was, was kind of like, yeah, oh, Chris I mean, really is down there. Yeah, it, uh, you know, one of the enormous benefits of being here is that you just really walk a few feet and can go to a different practice. And, I mean, it – Ordinarily, you want to go see a team. For me, anyway, you hop a plane or you wait for them to come through. For me, Boston to get some at a shoot around. Now you can go to daily practice, daily shoot around to games, and I try to hit um, no fewer than four, sometimes as many as six practices every single day, and then go to one of the later primetime games uh, at night. Uh, I'll be at the the, six, the Sixers versus. Uh, the Spurs a little later today, so it's um, it's a really unique opportunity to, to to be around a lot of different teams and, and do a lot of different things. Does it make up for the confinement in the bubble? Yeah, because it's not. I mean, it's not really confinement. I mean, it's you're allowed to you you walk around. It's it's hot out there. That's probably the worst of it. But you know, I mean, it's hard to look at this as any kind of confinement. I mean, except for. You know, the same hotel room, which gets dirtier by the day, uh, you know, that's uh, probably the worst of it. But uh, overall, it's it's pretty solid amenities. I mean, it's I just order room service. Like, I mean, that's it's not that life is not that difficult here inside the bubble. <laughs> Chris, have you noticed any uh, trends with the basketball you've been watching on the floor? We had we had talked a lot beforehand about the three point shooting and whether that would be a little slow to come along. Have you noticed, you know, kind of teams struggling with certain things? Well, the shooting's better than I thought it was going to be. Um, and I don't have the overall numbers quite yet, but you know the games I've seen with the eyeball test have been pretty good. I mean, even the Rockets were 21 of 61 last night. You know, that's, that's still a solid number, even though it's below a number they want to shoot. Uh, but the Clippers have been really good, despite the fact that they've had so many guys you know, coming in and out. 
So the three-point shooting has been has been pretty solid. I think the defense is what is is just awful, you know, by and large. I mean, some of these numbers teams are putting up are eye-popping. I mean, I was watching, again, Rockets-Bucks last night, and Milwaukee's one of the best, not the best defensive team in basketball. And of those 63-pointers they gave up, like 50 of them were wide open. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of things teams have to clean up defensively, and some of that's conditioning. I mean, guys are clearly not in shape at this point, at least not in shape enough to go extended minutes and, and you know, be in the kind of shape they were in before the pandemic hit. Um, but uh, you know that that you know will hopefully come around as these teams as time goes by. But it's certainly something worth watching. You know, can, will these teams you know get better defensively? And top level teams like Milwaukee, LA, um, go down the list. I mean, they some teams win by their defense. If it's not there, that's certainly a difference maker. I watched that Rockets Bucks game as well. Did that thing mean anything to you? Uh, I mean, good win for Houston, and I'm still confused at why teams do not treat Russell Westbrook in the same way that Utah did, you know, back in February where they stuck Gobert on him and basically dared Westbrook to score 50 on mid-range jump shots. I mean, if I'm, you know, an opposing team, I take that. I take a a Russell Westbrook mid-range over open three-pointers from good three-point shooters all day long. I mean, it's... It just seemed a little weird watching, you know, Dante DiVincenzo, who had no chance in that matchup, and George Hill, who had a little bit of one, but not much, um, you know, just get cooked by Westbrook all game long. So, you know, that that to me was was surprising. I mean, the Rockets, look, they are what they are. There's nothing imaginative about their offense. It's, you know, one you know one on one play, four guys spread, and you know, may the best man win. Uh, the team's gonna have to start to get a little creative, like the Jazz did with Gobert uh, to, to challenge the Rockets. Jazz have the Lakers tonight. Chris, what have you seen out of LeBron and the Lakers thus far? Well, LeBron's in great shape. I mean, I, I, you know, Davis is in great shape, too. And, and really, when it comes to the Lakers, it's all that really matters. I mean, those two guys playing at a high level makes everybody else, um, you know, that much better. So, in that sense, I think they'd look good. I mean, I, I still get concerned that guys like Deion Waiters and J.R. Smith are now in roles that require them to play meaningful minutes. I mean, Waiters, you know, just signed with the team back in March, and Jr. just signed with the team a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, having these guys in roles where you know they may have to play fourth quarter minutes if there's a an injury or foul trouble, that that to me is a little problematic. But Dwight Howard looks good. You know, continuing to pick up where he left off. Uh, you know, guys like Danny Green and Caruso are fine, and, and LeBron is is LeBron. I mean, it was it was kind of funny in that opener watching, you know, with no crowd watching the, the one of the best defensive sequences I've seen all season, where LeBron you know, bottled up Kawhi and switched out and bottled up Paul George, two elite offensive players, and he bottled them up in the same possession. It was you know, kind of crazy to witness that with no reaction from anyone in attendance when you know if that had happened in Staples Center, it would have you know, made the building blow up. So it's, uh, it's, it's definitely interesting to watch these teams kind of go at it uh, without the atmosphere that comes with, with big games. That perimeter shooting, uh, Chris, may be better than you thought it was going to be, but I'm telling you, you were bang on with the Jazz. They have struggled from three. And the thing that's frustrating for them is they knew they weren't going to have Boyan Bogdanovich, and everyone talked about that being a disadvantage for them. But they worked for over a month on compensating for that, and then they come out in those first couple of games, and they, they can't compensate for it. Yeah, and they got a little lucky in that New Orleans game with Zion sitting the amount of time that he did. Um, that helped them get a win there. But you're right. I mean, 
at some point, it's not rocket science. You've got to make shots. If, if three-point shots are open, you've got to make them. And players have come down here, and many of them have not been as sharp as they ordinarily were. Now, I think I expected the Jazz to be a little bit sharper, um, you know, because they haven't been dealing with the coronavirus bug, you know, besides what they dealt with back in March. So having your kind of full complement in Utah at the facility in, you know, in Orlando at full strength, I thought that was going to be an advantage for them early on. Also training at altitude, I thought would be an advantage, you know, conditioning-wise coming into all this. But that hasn't really manifested itself. It's still early. It's a couple of games in. So there's a lot of teams that are still trying to, you know, go with the flow here and, and, and get their legs under them. So I'm, I'm not ready to give up on them yet, but it's, it's clear that, that not having, you know, Bogdanovic is, is a loss and, and not making three-point shots is just unacceptable for a playoff team. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated with us. Chris, Gordon and I have kind of had an ongoing conversation about which team would be the best matchup for the Jazz in the first round. And really, there's no good answer because these are, these are really good teams. But they're like most likely to face Houston or Oklahoma City. If you were a Jazz fan, which team would you root for them to get? You know, I'd probably look, look at Houston because I don't, I don't want to face Chris Paul, a healthy Chris Paul in a playoff series and – you know, the advantage of Gobert is somewhat mitigated by by Steven Adams out there on the floor. Um, somewhat. I mean, he's still able to be great defensively, but Adams is a is a beast. Adams had a great start. Uh, I forget what his numbers were today, but I mean he's been very good in the scrimmages and then early on. So I don't know if I want that matchup. Houston at least like I said, I mean if you're the Rockets and you had something that maybe works with Gobert guarding Westbrook, I mean you can you can defend everybody else. If you just keep a body on those three-point shooters and, you know, deal with Harden getting, you know, some some portion of what he's going to get, uh, you've got a, a great chance of winning a series like that. I mean, Westbrook, I, I'm a huge Westbrook fan, but, you know, at this point, has he been able to be the alpha on a team that any kind of playoff success? Really, no. So if you put all the onus on Russell Westbrook to make, you know, big shot after big shot and to put up 40-plus every single night, he's going to have to prove he can do it. So I, I think I'd rather play Houston. I mean, look, the – the Rockets can also shoot you into oblivion fast. Like if you, you know, don't play that type of defense against them, they can win 127-101 very quickly. But you know, that's a team that I think if you're if you're Utah and you are comfortable with the go, that Gobert matchup, I might go in that direction. You know, one of the things that impressed me about the Thunder and the way they handled the Jazz uh, was the the pressure they applied defensively, Chris. I know you're not a coach, but you've watched a lot of basketball in your time. When teams are able to do that defensively, uh, what can a team do on the offensive end to overcome that? Quinn Snyder talked about making smart, quick decisions and being aggressive and getting to the rim. Is that is that the answer? Well, I think aggressiveness is part of the answer. I think a lot of coaches I've talked to about you know, beating defenses like that, especially one that are backstopped by big men, is that second drive. So you make the drive, you get bottled up, you kick it out, you get that second drive to the basket. So you're forcing that defense to to scramble a lot on that end of the floor. But it's just a little bit of everything, you know, when it comes to that. I think with Oklahoma City, you have to look at the quality of defenders they have, especially in the perimeter. I mean, Chris Paul is excellent. Jake Gilders, Alexander is solid. Dennis Schroeder has been much better this year on the perimeter. So they're able to, to do a decent job on the outside, look, if you're foreshadowing a playoff series, Andre Roberson is back. And Andre Roberson has a lot of playoff experience with that team. And 
you give him eight games, get his legs under him, he's going to be a valuable contributor as a wing defender, whether it's you know on a Joe Ingles or even you know dropping down to defend a, a Mike Conley in certain situations. So it's another weapon that Billy Donovan can can go to. So that's I, that's a long way of saying it's just one. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't want to face Oklahoma City if I had a choice in that first round. The Rockets aren't going to defend anybody. I mean, they are just. I mean, they're they're really horrible defensively uh, by and large. And I mean, watching Brook Lopez and Giannis, you know, play in the paint. I mean, they. I've never seen a team win that was out rebounded by twenty nine. Like I've never mm-hmm. seen that before in all my years of of covering basketball. They, and Rudy Gobert could average forty in a series like that if he's patient enough. But you know, that that's a team that you just have to find a way to slow down offensively. You don't really have much to worry about. Uh, when it comes to them defensively. Chris, uh, given that they lost Kawhi Leonard at this time last year, are you surprised or impressed that the Raptors are as good as they are? I'm shocked. Um, you know, and I, I think back to the Las Vegas uh, USA basketball camp that I was at uh, just about a year ago this week or last week, whatever it was. And I remember sitting down with Kyle Lowry, and I wrote something, you know, where Lowry said, you know, we're not – going to cry over Kawhi, we're going to pick up where he left off, we're going to go out and try to, to win a championship. And I, I wrote something up, and you know, Kyle actually DM'd me on social media and was like, and he kind of made it sound like I'm saying we're the favorite. I know we're not the favorite. It's, you know, I'm just saying like we're not going to whine about it. So you know, it, that just resonated with me now because I, I can't imagine Kyle, even Kyle, a player that believes in himself as much as anybody in the league, would you know, fast forward a year and look at the Raptors as being, at worst, kind of a co-favorite. In, in this mix. I mean, there's a lot to, to wonder about this team when it comes to Siakam, his ability to be the alpha in the playoffs. But, you know, watching Fred Van Vliet today just go nuts, uh, that's not an aberration. Fred Van Vliet's a really good. So, like, he, you know, these guys are showing that playoff experience matters and they're going to be comfortable in this moment. I think what else matters for them is that they've been in Florida since, like, you know, the middle of June. So they've had time together. They're, they're on the same page. They're probably in better condition than most of these teams. I mean, the Eastern Conference playoffs, they're going to be wild. I mean, Milwaukee, uh, they had a long – I was outside their meeting room earlier today. They had a long team meeting uh, today. And one thing they're going to have to do is is shore up that defense and, and you know, defend three-point shooters better because if they're as bad defensively as they were in that game against Houston, they're vulnerable to a, a several teams in the Eastern Conference, including Toronto. As far as the atmosphere goes down there, Chris, uh, have you noticed any difference between the venues? Uh, is there a better feel one place or the other? Uh, what do you think? No, they're identical, both in, in aesthetics and how they feel. I mean, the NBA is tinkering with certain things. I mean, virtual fans is just weird, mostly because I don't think anybody knows how to do it. And these games start and continue with, like, a third of the seats empty, and that's pretty strange to me seeing – you know, virtual seats empty. And I also think that if people are listening and they go on these virtual seats to remember that we can see you at all times. So if you pick your nose or do something else, it's spotted very, very public way. Um, but they're, they're tinkering with different stuff. I mean, I, I don't know if the jazz do it. I haven't been to one of their games in person, but you know, uh, the Lakers, the Celtics, they bring, they have pre-recorded, uh, you know, introductions in their own play by play guy. Uh, you know, there's a very they try to make it as home a feel as they can for the the unofficial home team. Uh, so things change, you know, a little bit here and there. But every venue is almost identical. I'm going to the the Visa Center to see, you know, the Spurs and the Sixers, and it's the same as the arena. It's the same as the H Pavilion. They're, they're all, you know, virtually identical on the floor. 
And as far as the social justice stuff goes, what has been your impression in that regard? I think it's great that so many guys, you know, either begin, end, or make their entire interviews about the things they care about. You know, for the most part, it's the the killing of Breonna Taylor that they're very vocal and passionate about. Um, I like that coaches are involved in all this with what they wear and what they say, whether it's Greg Popovich or Rick Carlisle who begin their press events. And Rick, Rick does it every time with some kind of significant moment in black history. Um, so there's, there's just a constant, there's a constant feel that about this movement that, that, that keeps it at the forefront at all times. And, you know, players, you know, wearing the things they wear in the back of their jerseys, coaches wearing t-shirts, the buttons they wear uh, during games. It's all, uh, it's all great. I mean, I think it's, and it's only going to continue and magnify as we get into the postseason when there are even more eyeballs uh, on them. I am curious about, you know, the, the anthem stuff. They are, I don't think players know if they're going to do it the duration of this uh, season and playoffs or if it's just going to be during these eight seeding games. Uh, but whatever they're, whatever they're doing, it's working. It's, it's staying at the forefront, and it's keeping a very important issue front and center for, for people to, to hear about. Kind of on that note, Chris, and you cover the Boston Celtics closely, kind of why I'm asking you this. Has Gordon Hayward uh, said anything or or has he had any comments on this? And I ask because when he was with the Jazz and the initial Ferguson happened in the Colin Kaepernick situation, the Jazz got together as a team and said they were going to link arms for the national anthem. And Gordon Hayward did that, but he also put his hand over his heart because it was something that was really important to him. So I was curious if you've talked to him or if he's made any statements about what uh, kind of the NBA and the teams are doing? I don't think he's made any statements, and he obviously hasn't done anything different than the players on the team. It seems like everybody, uh, save for a few who have different reasons, are united on this front. So, you know, whatever his thinking was back then, it it clearly has evolved up until this point. And look, it's not unusual for that. I mean, it feels like every player to a degree and everybody in the league office, their feelings have evolved on this. Like this, what happened to George Floyd and what's happening right now across this country has inspired a movement that has never been this inspired for lack of a better phrase. I mean, go back to 2017. There were a lot of, you know, these issues were still there. Colin Kaepernick was um, early on in his, you know, kind of exile from the NFL and, the NBA, even then, you know, made it clear, and I wrote about this at the time, that if players kneeled during the national anthem, that there would probably be some kind of punishment. Now, no players did that season, but you know, the NBA was not going to be as tolerant of it as they are right now. I mean, this is, you know, how long will it last? I don't know, but I think whether it's Gordon Hayward or Adam Silver or any number of players that felt one way three or four years ago, that. Uh, I, I think a lot of them feel differently now. You know, that's how much different this current movement is to anything that happened in the past. When we talked with you last, we asked you about the the possibility of the unexpected. Now that you've seen a few of the games and you've seen some of the better teams play, and are you on that same uh, line? Do you think that there is a chance that – Teams like the Clippers and the Lakers and the Bucks could be upset, or do you think nope? It's still exactly that, and that's what it's going to come down to. You know, I, I go back and forth because you know I, I felt coming in that this would be a wild 
presumption in a wild playoffs where anything could go. And then in the scrimmages, I watched Milwaukee just dominate early on, and Giannis looked great, and everyone looked locked in on the Bucks. And then they squeak by the Celtics, they lose to the Rockets, and I'm starting to think, well, maybe they are vulnerable because they're giving up a lot of threes I mentioned before. And now the Clippers coming in, I, I thought I actually said on, you know, I was talking to Ryan Rosillo about this. I said, I think the Clippers could lose in the first round, you know, based on kind of all the uncertainty they had with their roster and so many guys that were not around. Uh, but they've come out and look great in the first couple of games of this, uh, of this season, you know, making shots in the second one, of course, and, and they don't look like they've skipped a beat at all. So I, I'm going to, I guess as we speak now, I'll lean more towards it being more towards chalk. Uh, but, I mean, that could change in a week, two weeks. I mean, I didn't think I'd be sitting here telling you I'm about to go to Spurs Sixers because San Antonio's 2-0 and and looks like they could make the playoffs with 23rd year in a row. I mean, it's like it's, it's some, of this, some of the stuff that is going on is kind of wild. But, you know, for right now, I lean towards the, the favorites coming out of the conference. But uh, I put it this way, if you are a gambler, don't take – my bet. Don't don't take my advice on any of this. I think a lot can change in this bubble. Chris, as always, thank you very much. We appreciate it. You got it, guys. Our friend Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated, your daily assist, brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. I kind of agree with him, but I, after watching Houston take care of the Bucks last night, I know in the playoff situation, you know, it's a best of seven and all that, but I, I, I think there is room for or some uh, upset. Man, I just don't know. With with no home court advantage, I still lean towards the it's going to be chalk. <laughs> well, that's the way you roll. That, well, that's the way one of us usually does it. But <laughs> but in this in this case, I think that talent's going to win out. I I really do. And the, you know what? The Jazz, uh, unfortunately, are at more of a disadvantage, I think, than others because I, I think there is a home court advantage here at Vivint Smart Home Arena. And and you do, are more likely to shoot better at home. And if they are going to depend on making those threes, you know, they're at a disadvantage not being there. But teams like, you know, LeBron or teams like the Lakers that start two of the league's best, what do you want to say, Gordon, six, seven, arguably five players? I mean, it doesn't matter where they're playing; they're gonna they're gonna win more than they lose. Well, but let me let me challenge something you just said. I know that the Jazz are used to shooting at uh, at Vivint Arena and whatnot, but these gyms, these smaller gyms, are usually the sight lines are usually pretty good for the shooters. Uh, you would think that they would be able to shoot well in, in a smaller arena like that. Um, I guess I'm a little surprised that they've come out as rusty as they have from uh, from behind the arc. Good players shoot better at home, and I think that has is less than – I'm not talking about great players. Great players shoot well anywhere. Good players shoot better at home, and it's not because of friendly rims or those types of cliches. I, I truly believe it's because the energy in the building. Hmm. You know, you're more likely to get on a roll and, and have that – you know, instead of being booed every time you touch the ball, you, but, you know. I mean, so much of it is emotion. There's a lot of factors involved here. Did you watch Kelly Olenek in that uh, game, the the Heat against, um, who did I say they were playing? Hmm. Nah, I'm losing it right now. But uh, he, he hit like four or five threes in a row. And they were, they were tough shots. But he knew. He, he just knew the ball was going in. And sure enough, it did. I, I find that aspect of shooting really interesting. 
because it didn't have anything to do with necessarily having a clean look or or having three or four or five beautiful setup passes prior to. It's just the fact that this guy was flat feeling it, and he and he made he made his shots. And once he made the first two, you knew he was going to make the next three. I the Jazz haven't the Jazz haven't had that. They have not had that advantage uh, at all. It seems like everybody's a little unsure about those shots going in. Uh, that was uh, that game. By the way, was against the Nuggets. They beat the Nuggets one twenty five, and he yeah. had twenty points and was four of six from three. So, yeah. Uh, all right, coming up next, we're going to talk to Stuart Mandel, one of the best out there in covering college football, editor in chief at the Athletic College Football. So we'll talk to him about what's going on with Pac twelve and across the rest of the landscape as well. Straight ahead, ninety seven five and twelve eighty of the zone. So put your hands together and please welcome. This is Utah's best sports radio. You're listening to The Big Show with Gordon Monson and Jake Scott. Presented by Mountain America Credit Union. Guiding you forward on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're going to talk to Stuart Mandel of The Athletic coming up here momentarily. Very eager to get uh, Stuart's opinion on what's going on with the Pac-12 and, well, college football getting off the ground altogether. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's a lot, lot of questions. I don't know how many. I don't know how many answers there are. Right. All right. Let's jump out to the T-Mobile special guest line. T-Mobile and Sprint coming together to build the best wireless company around. Visit T-Mobile.com for online services and local store availability. Joining us now, editor in chief of the Athletic College Football. He is Stuart Mandel with us back on the Big Show. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Good. How are you guys? We're doing great. Uh, Gordon and I were just laughing. We have a lot to get to uh, with you today, but let's start with the Pac-12, the the player movement that we saw over the weekend. Your overall thoughts on what we're seeing with these guys? Yeah, it's the next kind of logical extension of the movement we've seen build up over several years and certainly over this offseason where college athletes who for so long felt like they couldn't use their voice, couldn't speak up, certainly have been doing more and more so um, certainly over the last few months. And, and this is the first time we've ever really seen this large a number of athletes, you know, spanning several different teams, um, coordinate efforts and, and do something quite this formal. Uh, whether it truly involves hundreds, uh, like the organizers claim, or, you know, I think in, in reporting on it yesterday, you realize there were a dozen or so, like who are the true ringleaders, you know, whatever it truly is. I mean, it just, we really haven't seen anything like it before in college football. So what's the end game here? I mean, what, what what will satisfy this group? And if let's say half the demands are met, or even a fraction of them are met, will are these will these players refuse to play, or do you think this is just sort of grandstanding? What's your take on it? Well, I think we have to see first what the conference how they plan to address it, because right to this point, you know, they put out this this letter yesterday and the press release and players' tribune, but 
um, only last night, I believe, did they actually make contact with the conference to try to set up some sort of discussion. So I think the conference didn't have much to say yet to this point. And I think the number one thing will be, you know, are they taken seriously? Will the conference actually engage in discussions with them? And, and will they feel like they are actually being taken seriously and heard? You know, i got to think that realistically, deep down, um, they realize that a lot of those things on there about revenue sharing and and asking Larry Scott to take a drastic pay cut, that those things aren't going to happen in, in four weeks or six weeks uh, between now and when they would need to actually decide to opt out. Um, but some of the concerns specific to um, feeling like their safety is being addressed uh, in terms of playing in, in the time of COVID-19, you know, that I would think at a bare minimum they would want to get some assurances on. There was a, a story out there about Nick Rolovich, the head coach at Washington State, uh, basically telling uh, one of his players, uh, a wide receiver, that uh, participating in this might not be in his best interest. And I, I think it's somewhat foolish of him to say that uh, that directly, but I'm guessing he's not alone in the coaching world when it comes to the opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously I don't think he knew his, his opinion was being recorded, but um, you know, it, it seemed like there was a... Uh, some misconnections mis, uh, here on a couple of things. I mean, it seems like the player was under the impression that he could opt out for the season but still keep being part of the team and working out. And you know, the reality is if somebody's saying that they're concerned about their health, uh, then they're not going to then continue to let them be around other players. And really that's – if you're going to get catch COVID-19, I mean, it's just as likely to be from – Actually, it's more likely probably to be from being around your team in close quarters than uh, you know going and playing a road game somewhere. Um, so I understand that part of it, but yeah, the comments he made about you know to the effect of if you join this movement, there's going to be he didn't use this word, but it sounded like you were saying there could be repercussions. Is the last thing you want to be saying as a college football coach right now, and the fact that it went public and went viral, uh, you got to think some other coaches around the conference will be. We'll be bringing that up to players that they're uh, they in Washington State are both recruiting. Getting back to what you were sta- saying earlier, Stuart, about about these uh, these items on the list of everything on there. What do you think is the most likely to be uh, to be acted upon in a positive way, and what's most likely to be absolutely completely ignored? I mean, a couple of them the conferences had already addressed in terms of assuring that. Uh, and maybe they need this to be stated more formally, but in terms of you know players that opt out of the season over COVID concerns are not going to lose their scholarships. I mean, that was one of the things on their list, and I think the conference has already come out and said that. Um, and, you know, I think that the thing about insurance, I don't know all the technicalities of that, but some sort of assurance that if they have long-term uh, uh, consequences from this, that, that the insurance would be covered. Uh, I think are the most kind of short-term feasible things. And then when you start getting it, oh, and I would also say in terms of their concerns about racial injustice, I mean, every pro sport that has come back so far has made that a big part of their return to sports. And so uh, certainly, and I don't know exactly what the players have in mind, but certainly reasonable for the Pac-12 to come out and say we're going to have Black Lives Matter on the field or, you know, any number of things, things you're seeing the NBA do and Major League Baseball do and whatnot. So those are the more tangible things. When you're getting into the entire structure of the sport and how athletes are paid or not paid, um, I mean, the Pac-12 could very easily just say, hey, there's nothing we can do about this. These are the NCAA rules. You're going to have to, you know, go bring this up to the NCAA. 
Stuart Mandel of the Athletic with us here on the on the Big Show. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Pac-12's return to play plan in particular? I think it's smart to, and the SEC is doing this as well. I think it's smart to buy time right now. You know, as much as we'd all love to watch football Labor Day weekend, uh, like we always do. I mean, realistically, the number the, the, we're still at pretty much the peak of this uh, around the country. Also, I just think you'd want to step back and learn from the NFL. Let them go first, um, see how their training camp goes, how their uh, early games go before college makes a go of it. Now, I say that the Big 12 and others are still planning to play August 29th. The Big 10 hasn't come out yet and said they're delayed. So, um, you know, the Pac-12 and the SEC are kind of alone on that right now. But And the Pac-12 is the only one that's actually delaying the start of preseason camp. But even that, they're not delaying it that much. So I, I definitely think... I would, if I'm in their shoes, and look, everybody's going to – it's all out of everybody's control, whether it actually is practical to play college football this fall. But I think the best chance to, to make it work is to buy yourself more time rather than the Big 12 approach seems to be. We know games are going to cancel, so let's just start them earlier and get it out of the way. Stuart, what would you do if you were Tom Homo at BYU and you've lost half your schedule, maybe more than that, uh and you're looking for opponents to play, assuming that there is a college football season, what in the world can they do? Well, I certainly don't envy it, uh, but you know, the, the, the one thing working in his favor right now is that a lot of teams have had their games canceled. Um, now that, you know, certainly now that the SEC, which I think most people didn't necessarily expect to go on that route, you know, so now you're talking, what, three of the Power Five conferences have already committed to no non-conference games, the ACC at most one. There's a lot of teams out there that suddenly have um, open dates on their schedule. Now, they may not be as desirable as the teams that, that BYU is losing off their schedule. It, it probably, I think, would be mostly, if not entirely, group of five. But there are teams out there to play. But it's certainly, uh, I mean, it's just it's going to have to be quite a patchwork schedule. You hearing anything, Stuart, about what the Mountain West might do? I think all of the group of five conferences are uh, waiting to see what the Power Five do first. Uh, I don't think any of them are, are going to go out there on their own and make any big announcements. Um, you know, in some cases, I think the Sun Belt is specifically going to do what the SEC does, and the MAC will probably closely do what the Big Ten does. I don't know that the Mountain West is necessarily locked into the Pac-12 or to any other conference like that, um, but I think they're taking their cues from the Power Five because ultimately. Um, you know, they know the power power dynamic in the sport. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I think they're waiting for all of those conferences to get their schedules more firmly um, locked down. And I think that's going to happen, by the way, in the next couple of days. We're expecting Big 12 possibly later today and Big 10 tomorrow. Do you think Notre Dame will end up in the ACC store? Or is this just a one-time deal? I think it's a one-time deal unless, I mean, the crazy thing would be that if Notre Dame actually – you know, in this one season, the ACC won the ACC, or at the very least played in the ACC championship game and got a taste of what that's like because, you know, it's it's too – you can't go into it in, like, short nutshell detail, but then the, there are many, many reasons Notre Dame is independent, and they have almost nothing to do with who you play – you know, uh, competing for championships. You know, it's about getting to play USC and, and, all, and maybe all the teams they usually play and traveling around the country – those things are really important to their fans. What I've always been curious about, though, and now we're going to get to find out, is how would how would Notre Dame players who aren't, you know, uh, they're there for 40 years, they're not so wed to tradition. 
how do they feel? How would they feel about getting actually hold up a trophy and win a conference championship? And would they want to keep doing that? I think that would be fascinating to find out. I think it'll frankly be a little unsatisfying if they finish fourth and and just don't get that experience and, and everybody just moves on. But because I don't think that it's going to sway the fans as much as it could sway the players. Stuart, thank you very much for jumping on with us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The great Stuart Mandel, uh, editor-in-chief for the college football coverage from The Athletic. And uh, there are a few out there more dialed into the world of college football than Stuart Mandel. Yeah, the one question we really didn't ask him was, do you think this is going to happen? And there's no way of knowing that, so we, like, maybe there's no reason to ask it because everybody's just guessing at this point. But it is, I still think, pretty much up in the air. A lot of things going on right now. All right, we'll get to the Not Sports Report. Coming up next, stay tuned. 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. The Utah Jazz are back. Catch and shoot three. Pow! And this is your Jazz Game Preview. Presented by University of Utah Health. The Utah Jazz have open seating play going one and one, a thrilling win over the Pelicans 106-104 and a disheartening performance against the Thunder. They lost 110-94. Tonight they tip off again, a 7 o'clock start against LeBron and the Los Angeles Lakers who are also one and one with an early win over the Clippers and a loss to the Toronto Raptors. Jazz and the Lakers, 7 o'clock right here on 1280 The Zone. This Jazz Game Preview is presented by University of Utah Health. They take care of Utah like Utah takes care of each other. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Oh, hey guys, Jake here from my friends at Zero Res, and everybody's talking about clean these days. Everything needs to be clean for with good reason, obviously, but Zero Res has been living clean right here in the Salt Lake area for well over a decade, and I've been using them the whole way. They are terrific. I'm grateful for my relationship with Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. I've been working with them and uh, have been for, as I mentioned, a really long time. Uh, they've been leading the industry when it comes to clean. Their powered water cleaning is the industry's first no-residue carpet cleaning system. It cleans better, leaves no dirt-attracting residues, and my carpets stay cleaner longer. And uh, their customer service is just terrific. They treat your house uh, like it was their own. They've got the corner guards and the booties, and uh, they're absolutely the best when it comes to getting your carpets cleaned. And right now, they have a great deal for you. They're continuing to offer their lowest rates. Just give them a call. Tell them Jake from The Zone sent you. They're going to hook you up. Just $33 per room cleaned. And when you schedule three rooms, Zero Res is throwing in the fourth room for free. A clean home is a healthy home and no one out cleans Zero Res. 801-288-9376. That's 801-288-ZERO. Or simply search online Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. Check this out. And now, your Not Sports Report on 97.5 1280 The Zone. And the Zone Sports Network. Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. 
Time for the Not Sports Port, brought to you by the LHM Used Car Supermarket. Over 1,000 used vehicles in inventory. Shop online, LHMUsedCars.com. Gordon, where are we going today? We're going to Egypt. All right. You and Moses I mean, used to be pals back in the I, day, right? I, 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 mean, <laughs> I mean, real Egypt. Not, not, you know, the metaphorical Egypt. There's a metaphorical Egypt? Well, you know, that you're, you're in Egypt somewhere. Did you see, first of all, before I read this, let me ask you, where do you think the uh, the, the uh, Great Pyramids came from? Uh, if this is an alien story, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, the I'm, I'm checking out if this is an alien story. What, what do you mean where they came from? Oh, they were gosh, built in Egypt. Where did they come from? Where did what come from? The material? Okay, look. We went... Humankind went from groveling around, hitting each other over the head, you know, for basic, uh, for base the basics in life, like trying to eat and stay alive, and then all of a sudden they built these pyramids. That stuff and still so, happens every Black Friday in my neighborhood. And by the way, uh, all of a sudden, what are you talking about? All of a sudden, boom. I mean, Where'd that come from? It took hundreds of years to build the pyramids, I'm pretty sure. And, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just telling you that... And we uh, didn't go from cavemen to pyramids overnight. <laughs> Elon Musk, on uh, the other day, he tweeted out that aliens built the pyramids, <sighs> obviously. And he's never lied. And then he, he followed that up with uh, the Great Pyramid was the tallest structure made by humans. For 3,800 years. 3,800 years. So he's suggesting that there's something screwy here. Yeah, that, and there then, is. And then, <laughs> and then some official or somebody from over there in Egypt. Just someone. Uh, tweeted out i follow your work with a lot of admiration i invite you and spacex to explore the writings about how the pyramids were built and also to check out the tombs of the pyramid builders mr musk we are waiting for you this is the Um, guy by the way elon musk that called remember they had the he had to, to build who was it that was trapped in a tunnel somewhere there was a whole group of kids that were trapped in a tunnel, and he said, we're going to come up with the, the machine that will get them out, and it was not real. Do you guys remember that oh, story? It was, the, it was the cave that flooded, right? The cave, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I he did. called someone a pedophile, and uh, yeah, I this is who we're looking to? Yeah, right. I'm just telling you, well, he's a pretty smart dude. No, he's a pretty rich dude. No, he's smart. No, he's Bruce Wayne. He's rich. No, he's smart. Nope. Rich. <laughs> He can be both. And he's pointing out that the pyramids just kind of appeared out of a period of time that... Uh, that's not really... They didn't was, just kind of appear, I don't think. I don't well, think that's how factual. Are, how are those things built? Uh, I think you... You know, I made a Moses joke earlier, but there's probably some insight there in the, the Bible, the whole let my people go thing. You know, that whole, <laughs> that whole free labor. Yeah, that gets <laughs> no, a lot done. The pyramids... Were the pyramids built by the... Uh, the Israelite slaves? Probably. So, uh, according to Greek historian Herodotus, 
The Great Pyramids took around 20 years to build, with a workforce somewhere between 20 and 100,000 men. Unbelievable. Nothing about aliens or overnight, just add water pyramid kits. Alf did not build the pyramids. I'm just telling you, they, you, just don't, you just don't build something like that. Even I 20 years. Me. 20 years to build that thing I ate back the then? I mean, they couldn't even build that thing now. It would take them 20 years. Then one morning, the pyramids were there. Wait, you, you've seen the the uh, advancement and uh, achievements of, of modern-day engineering and architecture, haven't you? Pretty sure they could they could do that in today's and day. And what, what happened to the Sphinx's nose? What happened a- to what? Aliens took it. The Sphinx's nose. We talked about the... We talk about the... the, the I hate this. Rest- I know. I, I'm, Why? I'm it's fascinating. It's not. It is. Even even the very smart man like Elon Musk is sitting there going, "How did this? How did this happen?" Did and you not smart watch? Is debatable. Did you not watch Aladdin? The guy was uh, making the Sphinx, and Aladdin and Jasmine flew by on the carpet, and he was whoa, and he ch- chipped off the nose. That's what happened to it. <laughs> those those pyramids are massive. How in the world did they engineer that? How in the world did they build that? Back and, and and then not to be matched for 3,800 years, that seems as though it's uh, quite the exception. What are you talking about? You've seen some of the pyramids in ancient South uh, South America, right? All I'm just saying is what Musk said here, and that is that the Great Pyramid was the tallest structure made by humans for 3,800 years. According to Wikipedia, which I could change right now to three years. Uh, let's see here. It's time to get a winner for the Chevy Strong <laughs> Play of the Game. Be caller 12 right don't, now. 855-340-0. Let's figure this out. What happened? Figure this out. Uh, if you correctly identify the Chevy Strong Play of the Game announced by DJ and PK this morning at 850, he'll win his own prize pack. It's the Chevy Strong Play of the Game brought to you by your Rocky Mountain Chevy dealers. You tell us, Gordon, how it happen. I think aliens must have been involved. I don't. You don't just build things like that. Yes, just, you do. <laughs> you're no fun. <laughs> you're no fun at all. In fact, uh, human beings have been building things like that for a long time. 100,000 people? That'll get or, it done. 20,000. There's a <laughs> That'll big gap That'll get it done, that. too. That's an incredible amount of, of people working on something. <laughs> In fact, it would be more surprising if they didn't get something like that done. When when were the pyramids built there, Austin? I don't, I don't know. You can Google it, you know. I'm just wondering how in the world, back then, how did they build these things? It's, it's just remarkable. It's unbelievable. Somewhere no, between 2550 to 2490 B.C. Unbelievable. It's actually very believable. Well, I think they got some help. I think they got some extraterrestrial help. Let's see who built the Great Pyramid. Some some architect named <laughs> Hemiunu. H e m i u n u. Your move, Elon. <laughs> All right. So maybe it wasn't aliens, but it is a remarkable feat, and I can only imagine how many you know how many people died building those things. A lot. And what for? What were they building them for? 
their uh, tombs. For the for the pharaohs to have a place to be buried? Yeah, their tombs. You're going to have some sort of mausoleum in your remembrance, <laughs> right? Well. You're kidding. No. We have a phone call, apparently. Uh, Josh wants to comment on this. Uh, hello, right. Josh. Hey, how you guys doing? Uh, I Josh, cannot believe you, I let you on, Josh. Can you explain what's going on with these pyramids? He hung up. Good. Apparently he hung up. He hung up! See, the aliens didn't want him to talk. <laughs> is that is that the aliens didn't want him to talk? That's what it e- is. Et phone home. Oh, stay tuned. I accidentally hung up on him. Hold on. Did you really? Oh, he's calling back. See, he's got a, Austin's got a. He just. Do you think the aliens that built the pyramids ate cats like Alf did? <laughs> I just don't know how humans who aren't capable of you know building a hut. Suddenly built these things. They were capable of building a hut. <laughs> Stop it. Come on, Josh. I need to know. I need answers. Josh, let me help you. All right, Josh. I, I don't know that I have them. But here's what I've, I've uh, the pyramids fascinate the heck out of me. So I've done some study, and yeah, maybe I've looked into some conspiracy weirdness like Gordon's talking about, or Elon Musk is claiming. I don't know if aliens had anything to do with it, but engineers of our day have said it would be virtually impossible for us, even with our equipment and technology, to build them in the time frame they did back then. Also interesting is if they were built by the Hebrew slaves, as in the the Bible and, and history claims, if you've got that many slaves, right, and they're your slaves, they're just there to do the work. They're going to die, and you don't care. So where's their grave? Thousands of them. All right. Thank you for the phone call. Yeah. How about answering those questions? Good on you, Josh. Maybe they uh, put them in the Nile, Gordon. I don't know. I I think the fact that we don't have answers to these questions should raise some doubts. I don't. That's all. Those are some big old pyramids. Yep, that's true. All right, stay I'd like tuned. To sit on, I'd like to sit on top of that great pyramid, man. That'd be frightening up there, wouldn't it? More next. 97.5 and 1280. Just, just slid on down the side.